Hello and welcome to the new and improved Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your new and improved host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the five-year editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more, and we have a fine and interesting show for you this week. We're going to talk to Pablo Gallaga, our film critic, about Five Nights at Freddy's, a unsuccessful video game, horror video game adaptation that is now in theaters. And we're going to talk to Paula Schaefer about an audio book series or an audio drama series uh, based on the Buffy the Vampire Slayer universe, but not featuring Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It is called Slayers, and it is on Audible, and we'll be talking to Paula about that in a bit. But first, we're going to get serious. Before we get frivolous, we're going to talk about the phenomenon of entertainers and writers kind of dithering about the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict, about the massacres that happened on October 7th. They're writing open letters, they're opening their mouth, and they're talking about things that they maybe shouldn't be talking about. We're also going to give credit where credit's due to some writers and also actors who are taking the side of good in this conflict. And I think that there is a good side and there is a bad side, and I am very clear about that. And Rebecca Curson, our contributor, will be here to talk to me about that right after these musical notes. We don't often get very political on this show. I mean, we cover issues related to censorship. We talked a little bit about COVID restrictions in movie theaters. Occasionally, current events other than entertainment events will cross uh, our transom. We talked about the writer's strike. But I feel like this is a, an important moment in history and in our politics. And we should talk about the war in Israel and Palestine, and specifically the intersection between the war in Israel and Palestine and the entertainment world and the literary world, because there have been these, these series of open letters signed by entertainment personages and, uh, and writers calling for a ceasefire uh, in the war before it's really started, let's face it. The, the calls for the ceasefire began the day after Israel was attacked and, and haven't, haven't really stopped. Uh, Rebecca Curson wrote a piece for us about this. She was a very uh, angry at, uh, at these, these sort of premature calls for a ceasefire. And she's here today to talk to me about what's going on. Hello. Hi. Hi. Yeah. So thank you for writing the piece and for standing up for Israel and for all Jews. I mean, you and I are, are both Jewish. I mean, that'll become uh, clear in a second if it isn't already. <laughs> but uh, and I feel like politically, you know, you're probably a bit more conservative than I am, but I am extremely uh, hawkish <laughs> at the moment because what happened on October 7th was an atrocity, unlike anything I thought I would see in my lifetime. And I understand that these are emotional moments, right? And people are going to have strong opinions and not everyone's going to have an opinion that you agree with and people are have their right to an opinion. But I have to say, I have been a bit dismayed at uh, the response of some people uh, to this. I mean, haven't you? Dismayed is the beginning of it, but but sickened would, would probably be a better term, especially not just the celebrities who in general are not generally very well informed on on all sorts of different topics that they love to to spout off about, 
But this one in particular, that the immediate pushback starting in the early morning of October 8th was, well, were those babies really beheaded? And having a, a reporter at New York Magazine, Eric Levitz, basically have to apologize and say babies were found with their heads removed, but we're not positive they were beheaded. Right. There's been a lot of disinformation. There's been a lot of obfuscating, you know, moral equivalency. And it's been gross to see. And I have people I've certainly um, unfriended people and have unfollowed people and have just kind of removed certain uh, opinions from my feed. You know, there, there's a um, I'm willing to listen to someone who says that there are people in the U.S. who are using this as a pretext for a larger war with Iran and we should be careful. There, there are issues that to be addressed. But anyone who's sort of um, denying or uh, minimizing what happened on October 7th is persona non grata to me. And that's why I, I found it. Uh, you know, you wrote you wrote about a couple of letters, open letters. One was from entertainment people and the other was from writers, you know, the writers one really, really chapped my ass, as they say. You know, it's like it's, they were all Jewish writers, like Michael Shabon and Jonathan Lethem and Ayelet Waldman, who's, who's married to Michael Shabon, Ben Marcus, Ben Lerner, but a few other uh, Masha Gessen, progressive Jewish leftists, and they were all like, "We're calling for an immediate ceasefire. We're against all human suffering." And I'm thinking, like, okay, sure, no one wants to bomb innocent civilians. But on the other hand, like that's your response as a Jew in the 21st century. It's been drummed into our heads over and over again. The Holocaust is coming again. It could come again. It could happen again. And then when something remotely close to it happens, suddenly like our intellectuals are like, meh, right? That was uh, disheartening is, I guess, a mild word for it. Um, Hitler came to power in 1933. And so here it is. It's we didn't even make it a century before we had another uh, Holocaust level event. And the writers first thought this Jewish group of writers was, well, I really hate Netanyahu. So I, I feel like that's going to be what I'm going with here is that I, I'm against his government. So I'm going to say, yeah, there's probably, you know, maybe something that we did wrong too in the Israeli side of things. So we should probably just have a ceasefire and let's see if we can work this out. I'm wondering if what, what message they missed on October 7th, what what they're not understanding about what Hamas is and what the organization is asking for. What was the conversation between Michael Shabon and, and his literary friends? Like, A, well, first of all, let's be clear, uh, uh, open letter from the, those writers, uh, for, and they publish it in The Guardian. First of all, like, their words mean a lot less in 2023 than they might have 20 years ago. These are all, I mean, I'm dating myself as well. I, I understand that I'm, I'm irrelevant and on the decline. Um, but you know, they, they don't, they seem to think that like somehow them calling for a ceasefire in the pages of the guardian will a lead to a ceasefire and B have any influence on anybody whatsoever. So I just, I found that kind of pathetic, honestly, it was just, it's embarrassing. And they're like, they're like intellectual voices who are not to be listened to and they are to be dismissed and ignored and they will be. They will be. They provided cover to Hamas because Hamas points to a letter and says, look, even the Jews agree with killing the Jews. And every Jew who comes out for BDS or um, signs letters like this, basically, they've just added another day in the life of, of Hamas and what life means for Palestinians living under Hamas. Every time you support anything that Hamas says or does, you've just given them more money. And you've allowed them to, to to continue to survive. 
The issue is not Netanyahu. The issue is Hamas is a terrorist organization holding truly millions of people captive since 2000, uh, I think, seven, when they killed everybody who opposed them. And, and took power. Yeah. And, you know, and that's it's just kind of a moral stain on these so supposed intellectuals who uh, would come out and, and you know, these writers, these influencers, people who have, you know, in the past, of course, like made being Jewish a strong part of their literary identity and have obviously like, you know, are um, very upfront and ready to criticize uh, right wing uh, American Nazis as well. They should uh, when, when that uh, when those kind of incidents pop up. But but in this case, when it's I don't even know what you, I don't even, you can't even call Hamas left wing, but when it comes from the other side of the political spectrum, wherever the hell that is, they're, um, they're willing to sort of be complicit in it. Yes. All right. Yes. So let's talk about, let's talk about the, uh, the actors. You also highlighted an actor's letter. Yeah. That one, uh, some of them are more laughable, um, because they always say the same thing. Someone like Tilda Swinton is uh, basically on the side of every trend that could possibly push her transgressive kind of nature. And this is just one of them. She is ridiculous in so many ways, but it's especially galling because she champions um, all sorts of gender fluidity, open marriages, all sorts of very progressive values in the intersection of of gender and sex. And she is supporting (laughs) uh, a terrorist regime that I can't even believe that she could even have the gall to even think about what they are doing to women right now in, in Gaza. And children. And children. Exactly, because children are, are free to marry as long as their father, who, by the way, is the only parent who matters, as long as they give permission. It is beyond belief that her unbelievable uh, uh, openness about gender and sexuality and what she thinks is her openness towards people of color does not extend to the the absolute uh, rights of the Palestinian women and children who live under a, the most brutal one, I would say one of the most brutal to women and children regimes on earth. This is who she wants us to to shake hands with. This is who she thinks wants to make a deal. Right. I mean, I don't think it's uh, too uh, much of an exaggeration to say like Tilda Swinton would be the first one off the roof if she went and tried to uh, make peace with Hamas. It's just crazy. I will say in defense and in defense, not of Tilda Swinton, but of one of your heroes, Sam Hugan from Outlander, who you were very dismayed to see sign the same letter that Tilda Swinton signed. My wife is also um, a huge Outlander fan, and she was also very upset that Sam Hugan had taken uh, the wrong side. He apologized on his Instagram. <laughs> I didn't see that because I, I decided to to stop following him. It was very painful because I've, I've seen Sam Hewan at so many different events and Comic Cons. I've seen him at so many things. And frankly, he's like a human Mr. Peanut Butter. He's just like the sweetest, loveliest, nicest person who gets along with everybody. And then for him to to sign this this utter invective against a whole group of people about he, whom he knows nothing the history of which he knows nothing to get on board of because it's it's because it's a trend it's a social trend he said now. he signed it and he didn't read it that's what he said really and someone got to him whether it was his agent or his manager or his you know partner or his, some friends i'm guessing it's Carol davis who's the producer and showrunner of of uh outlander for this entire time and is of course is a very proud jew I imagine she may have said to him, I don't know that you understand completely what you've done here. Yeah, well, maybe he does. Now, you should go back and just peek at his Instagram and maybe, 
maybe allow him back. And we have to show some sort of um, forgiveness, a little, a little, little tikkun alam, at least when it comes to the stars of our favorite TV shows. Um, I, I'm, I'll encourage that. You obviously can do whatever you want. I will say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some credit here, okay, if that's okay. Um, there is an le- open letter uh, signed. Um, there is a website called nohostagesleftbehind.com and a uh, large group of Hollywood personages signed this letter, which I thought we really ca- called on the Biden, administ- Biden administration to get uh, our hostages and all hostages freed from Hamas. And th- these yeah. people included, you know, Adam Sandler, Amy Schumer, Aaron Sorkin, Aubrey Plaza. I mean, I could go on Bradley Cooper, Billy Crystal, uh, Chris Rock, um, the, the, the names, uh, John Hamm, Eugene Levy, Gal Gadot, Judd Apatow, uh, Judge Judy, she's on the right side of, of history. Lana Del Rey, Madonna, uh, you know, it's it's a nice it's a nice list. Uh, Paul Rudd, and uh, the only thing I uh, Tyler Perry, it, it goes on and on. Um, you know, so so um, good good for them. I mean, not everyone is 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 blind to this. I will say I'm a little conflicted, uh, uh, Becky, because uh, James Corden signed the letter, the good letter, and I oh. I, I, I hate James Corden. Uh, I hate I hate his shtick, uh, but I, I suppose. <laughs> I will give him the he doesn't want uh, to see all Jews killed. I'll I'll put that in his in his positive column uh, and maybe he'll get something uh, in his uh, in his stocking this year. Well, I think he may have done that as a like sort of a a little message too to Keith McNally, who he's famously feuded with. And McNally was one of the people I did unfollow on Instagram after he called for um, uh, this as an opportunity to, to listen to the other side, no matter how bad the things they do or say. James Corden says no. Henry Winkler says no. Jack Black seems says no. Um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld is is on our team. Thank God. Uh, so is his wife, Jessica. <laughs> so what's up with that? Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So you know that's but that's the thing is like these the uh, opinions of one writer or one celebrity or ten writers or a hundred celebrities don't really matter. But you know this this is um, gonna I think end up being a, a generation defining conflict. And where people stood in the early days, I think, you know, I think it says a lot about their character. Yes. And I appreciate the celebrities uh, support, but I will say there's not much that can help me with seeing the, the video of Cooper Union students locked into a library and being threatened by probably about 100 different protesters and nobody stopped them. Um the library staff, all they did was lock the doors, but nobody. Yeah, and they offered to hide them in the attic. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I thought, wow, hide them in the attic. I, I, I'm positive I've heard this particular situation, that scenario before. These are upsetting times for sure. Well, I do hold out hope. You know, this is not the United States government that is is barricading Cooper Union students. These are these are group groups of college students. And I'm, I'm hoping that the people of, of goodness and reason can prevail here, you know, and that eventually this, the, the temperatures will die down, but it has been, it's been a dismaying uh, couple of weeks to say the least. I would say that. Yes. <laughs> but thank you so much for uh, contributing your voice to, uh, to the right side and to, you know, writing for us and for talking to me today about this. And again, you should at least give Sam, Sam uh, one more shot. I have to. Yeah, you, you, you do because Outlander, there's still another half a season to go or something. Right, right now they just got off the the ship in Scotland. I I I got to see. I, I have to know what happens. We'll give you a hall pass for that one. <laughs> yeah. All right, Rebecca Kirsten, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome to Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria, where fantasy and fun come to life. Hit it, guys. I'm here.
you're watching this video, it means you've been selected as Freddy's newest security guard. Hello? We're going to have so much fun together. Our movie of the week is Five Nights at Freddy's. It is an adaptation of a very popular video game series from, I guess, the teens, maybe the aughts. I'm not exactly sure, but now it has uh, come to the big screen and uh, it, very unsuccessfully. And Pablo Gallaga did the uh, the noble work of seeing Five Nights at Freddy's for us. And he's here today to talk to me about this adaptation. Hello, Pablo. Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, you know, in your piece, you uh, pointed out very astutely that this is actually not even the first live-action animatronic animal horror film to come out. It, 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 it was beaten to the punch during the pandemic by Willy's Wonderland, I believe it was called, the Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, that came out in February 2021, and by all accounts, it's much more interesting than this one. And it's and it's an, sort of an original piece of IP, whereas Five Nights at Freddy's was an extremely, and is, an extremely popular series of horror video games. Yeah, and the games themselves, I mean, I haven't played them. I've had them on my list for years, but the first one, at the very least, you know, comes very highly recommended, and I still will go back and play it, even though I was uh, underwhelmed by the film. Yeah, and, you know, it scared the hell out of people when it first came out. The The premise is that there are these, um, there's an abandoned sort of Chuck E. Cheese style place, restaurant called Freddy Fazbear's, and these characters, um, the audio animatronic characters, which are these kind of weird, like, half animal, half robot things, are possessed by the spirits of dead children, who, and then they murder people, basically. Yeah, and in the games and uh, by extension in the film as well, like there's all this lore around a serial killer and you know how the kids died and how the kids relate to the animatronics. But yeah, that's that's the gist of it. But the movie doesn't really. I mean, there is lore in the movie as well, but it doesn't. Um, but th it fills it with a lot of sort of backstory, right? Like kind of bad screenwriters tricks. Yeah, uh, if you go back to the game and, you know, the main character in the game as also in the film uh, played by jo uh, Josh Hutcherson of uh, the Hunger Games fame as a security guard and, you know, kind of tasked with, you know, keeping an eye on the animatronics. And in the game, you're kind of like, you know, more of like a faceless person. You're just in a single setting. You're watching the, the cameras, uh, the camera feeds to make sure, you know, the animatronics don't come after you. So in the film, there's all this backstory about how this character named Mike uh, his little brother was kidnapped when they were young, and then his parents died essentially from grief after that. And he's been spending his whole adulthood as the sole guardian of, of his little sister, and also trying to somehow through his dreams, figure out the identity of the kidnapper so he could, I don't know, maybe track him down. I don't know. And that's it's like just this whole unnecessary backstory leading into him getting the job to be the security guard at, at Freddy Fazbear's. At an abandoned Freddy Fazbear's, mind you. Yeah, it was uh, very popular in the 80s, as all these sort of restaurants were in real life. And uh, yeah, it's now defunct, I believe. 
it's never explicitly set, but it, it seems like the film is set in the 90s. Why does it need a security guard if it's abandoned? Right. Like, so I guess the backstory kind of leads to, you know, this job that no one would ever want. And for some reason, he's tasked with trying to keep people out of getting in there. And yeah, it's it's not stated in the film, but uh, the career advisor for him is Matthew Lillard. And obviously, you see Matthew Lillard playing a small role like that. You're like, okay, something else is going on here. He's too good an actor to be in this small part in a film like this. So yeah, just the conversation they have in career advisement is, you know, something else. There's some reason why he wants uh, Mike taking this position. And yeah, he gets there and things are weird. And, you know, there's no real reason. There's no real job to do besides sit in a chair and look at the feeds of the cameras. So yeah, it's not explained. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And yeah, ultimately, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It just it just sounds like a bad screenplay when it comes down to it, right? I mean, it sound it just sounds like they were trying to figure out a way to turn this franchise into into a film, and then they they weren't content with just adapting the video games. Maybe there isn't material in the video games to adapt. I mean, there's plenty. There's as I said in the review, there's lore. Like there's a lot about you know the what the serial killer you know, did after the fact there's, there's nine games. So it's built a lot. And the film actually doesn't just use material from the first game. It pulls in from subsequent games uh, where I think in the third or fourth game, they sort of retconned the reasoning behind why the animatronics come to life. And that gets used in the film. It's, uh, you know, the children being, you know, used to, to power those animatronics. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot to draw from, but it seems like they were trying to flesh out this stand-in character that you play in the games and give him this backstory, and it just feels very bloated. It's a, it's a two-hour runtime for this thing. It just, it shouldn't have been that. It should be just get to the restaurant and have some scares. That's the other thing too. Like this is, you know, I have a tolerance for scares. Just you know how I am with horror films. This was not scary at all. I don't think it will scare anyone. So it's a movie based on a series of horror video games, but it's actually not scary. Well, that that sounds like a recipe for disaster in the long run. Yeah, like the, the biggest scare in the film is actually featured very prominently in the trailer, and it's so telegraphed, like even if you haven't seen the trailer, you'll see it come in, and it's just not, not scary. And it's immediately followed by like a really goofy and gory death scene that's just comical. Like in my screening, everyone laughed. Well, it sounds to me like Five Nights at Freddy's is a candidate and a late entry candidate in, uh, for this year for one of, for a Golden Raspberry Award or two or three. So uh, there's that at least, right? Yeah, it's I don't <laughs> I don't even know if it'd be fun to go and just like ironically watch it. It's um, I think it'll probably be good enough for people that are just very diehard fans of this IP just because they get to see these characters realized uh, in the flesh or in the CGI, so to speak. But no, I mean, I don't think I don't think even they will enjoy it. They'll just be happy to see it on screen. All right. Five Nights at Freddy's. Uh, enter Freddy Fazbear's at your own risk. Pablo Gallaga, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thanks for having me, Neil. This world is full of slayers. Where I'm from, it's just me. You live as long as I have. You start thinking you've seen it all. I'm supposed to be retired. It will be bloody. Oh, bring it then. A strange phenomenon has opened up a hole, a wormhole in the entertainment universe, and it has consumed listeners of audiobooks. I am talking about Slayers, a new audiobook series 
in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer universe, but uh, it doesn't uh, star Sarah Michelle Gellar and uh, Buffy creator Joss Whedon has nothing to do with it. So it's just very strange to me that this even exists. And Paula Schaefer is our resident Buffyverse expert, and she has listened to Slayers and has written about Slayers for us and is here to talk to me about Slayers. Hello, Paula. I can never resist talking about things related to the Buffyverse, even when they're this tangential. Yeah, you know, Buffyverse, for the, our younger listeners, you know, may not mean as much as it does to Gen Xers like us, you know, but my wife watched the entire run of Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the second time while, you know, she was taking care, breastfeeding our, our, our son after he was born. You know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, is a mythology that means a lot to Generation X. So, you know, the arrival of the show should be met with some sort of celebration, but it just seems like it's like an odd side project. Yeah, and I think that people are excited to see all of the particular B characters working together in a Buffy-related story. It just, like, it's not quite a cash grab, but they definitely are doing it for cash. To hear, not to see. There's no there's no sight. Correct. It's, it's an audio, I don't even know if you'd call it an audio book, because it was written to be performed. So it's like Little Orphan Annie on the radio, like like you need your decoder ring, and it'll tell you to be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Right, it's an audio uh, play, an aud- it's an audio TV series. Well, that's the thing, is like, there's no, um, very few intellectual properties that can't be rebooted, and that aren't rebooted continually. Um, but this is the first time that I've seen something, as, you know, as Buffy the Vampire Slayer in its day was was the show. Buffy and the X-Files were sort of the, and Star Trek The Next Generation. Those were like the the signposts of the geekverse in the 90s, right? Those were, those were, those were the three. And it's just odd that it's been rebooted in, in such a, I know there's a lot of people who listen to audiobooks. It just feels like this is something that would be very much uh, suited for television. Yeah, so now Audible is trying to get us to sign on for their service to listen to streaming TV because we don't have enough streaming television to get in other places. Right. So, okay, so let's talk about the show itself. Like, basically, like, it revolves around uh, Spike, played by James Marsters, who was like the the bad boy vampire antagonist. He went back and forth between being a good vampire and a bad vampire, but he's the main character of this, right? Yeah. It opens with him. He's undercover pretending he's bad again, but he's really not. He's just trying to get information. And it takes place like 12, randomly 12 years after the original series. And I don't know how that ties in with the comic books because there's a huge series of Buffy comic books that are all canon. Uh, there are angel comic books that are all supposed to be canon. And so I assume it falls in line with something that happened in that. But I'm not a comic book lady, so I, I'm not sure how it all ties in or why 12 was the chosen number of years. So he's like, it's like a detective thing. So I remember the Angel series, Angel was a vampire detective in LA and he worked with the Charisma Carpenter character, Cordelia was her name. And uh, I believe that, and she is back in this audiobook series as well. Yes. And she was killed off in Angel, the TV series. But here she's back because she's actually a slayer who was called as a teenager in her alternate universe, which is how they've tied this all together to make it all work and bring these people back. Because most of them were 
gone from the show in whatever capacity. I mean, these are second banana uh, characters, right? I mean, the sort of the holy trinity, the uh, Buffy, Xander, and whatever the name. Uh, Willow. <laughs> Willow, right. Um, they, they are they are either, uh, in the case of the guy who played Xander, um, not uh, acceptable anymore, or in the case of Sarah Michelle Gellar and... What's the actress who played Willow? I'm having a I'm having a brain for she's she's the most famous of all of them. Allison Hannigan. Allison Hannigan. You know they're they're not going to do this. Correct, <laughs> correct. Allison Hannigan is sleeping on her bed of How I Met Your Mother money, and Sarah Michelle Gellar is just not interested. I don't blame her. You know this sounds. I mean, let's face it. This sounds kind of dumb. But then again, you seem to sort of like it at at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I, I like it a little and hate that I like it a little, but I too am sucked into just the joy of these characters I like, even though they're also kind of not the characters I like because they're from an alternate universe. So they all have different relationships. They all have different histories. Everything is different, but it's still kind of like, oh, it's it's fun to hear Juliet Landau doing her Drusilla. Oh, it's fun to hear Emma Caulfield doing her Anya. Like, yay. But also the stories. I, I'm not sure who the story is for exactly because it's a little juvenile, but it's not going to pull in people who didn't know Buffy in the first place. Right. Well, and also like, I mean, I haven't listened to it, uh, I, as you can tell, but I have uh, I did watch a making of Slayers video. And, you know, other than some sort of youthful people who they pulled into the cast, maybe to try to appeal to a, a young audience. It really looks like um, a bunch of old actors at a fan convention sort of reliving past glories. I hate to say it. That's what it feels like. Honestly, that's what, that's what I was, was just thinking when you asked that last question. It's kind of like the feeling at a con when you're in the audience and one of the people slips into their old character voice for a second and the crowd goes wild. That's kind of what this whole like nine hour production is. It's just reaching for that moment. And so there is that little bit of, oh, that's so fun. But at the same time, it's kind of a laborious chore to listen to. Well, yeah. And you got that model. And I think I feel like the um, the Star Trek Picard show on Paramount Plus follows the same model where it's like, OK, what, what people really like about the franchises is their youth and their vigor and their their forward thinkingness, which is why, let's say, Star Trek Strange New Worlds is a lot of fun because it's got young, sexy Spock not like old versions of the characters that you liked when they were in their prime. And I feel like uh, maybe the Slayers thing is kind of doing the the same. Yeah, well, well, because before the whole pandemic thing, Joss Whedon's big new clever idea was, hey, I'm going to do Buffy again and it'll be brand new. And everybody booed it. Like the fandom hated that idea across the board. Well, I don't know. This is very this is very nerdy, Paula. But you know what? You do? My my pitch my pitch is bring in a new generation of Slayers. Have it at a new high school with a new Slayer discovering their new power and a new mentor and all that. And then they, and then maybe bring back some of the Altacockers for uh, for guest appearances if they want. 
So the way to do that is the the Buffy spinoff series I've always wanted, which is like at the end of the main series, it's unlocked and all of the young girls with the potential to become slayers become slayers. There's no longer one girl. It's all of them. So the series should be they're at Slayer School and it's like the facts of life. They've got a Mrs. Garrett type who could be one of these former actors from the show and they're learning how to take the good and take the bad. You take them both and there you have the Slayer School. Boy, we are truly Gen Xers. We're this sounds like a rant we're we're gonna go on at the old age home. <laughs> In my day, the Slayers were things people you could look at. Um, yeah, right. Instead of it being an audiobook. Well, all right. So obviously Paula and I have not given Slayers the ravest of reviews. And yet if you are a dedicated Buffyverse fan, there is new content out there for you to consume. And it's on Audible. And, uh, you know, just approach it uh, at your own risk. And you, but the good thing about audiobooks is you really can, you can listen to them while you're driving. You can, you know, listen to them while you're doing the dishes or doing whatever, you know, around the house or just going for a walk. So it's it's an it's a good consumable form of media. Yeah, and everybody involved seemed to be having fun and that's that's fun. <laughs> All right. So it's fun. Everyone's having fun. Paula Schaefer, thank you so much. You bet. Slayers is now on Audible. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Paula Schaefer. Slayers is now available to listen to on Audible with your Audible subscription. If you like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you have your continuing story right now. Also, thanks to Pablo Gallaga for talking to me about Five Nights at Freddy's, which is in theaters now, and it's also uh, available for streaming on Peacock, which we neglected to mention during his segment. And thanks to Rebecca Curson for stopping in to talk about the unpleasant but necessary topic of the Israel-Palestine conflict and the uh, October 7th massacres and the writers and actors who may uh, be just uh, morally equivocating a bit. And we thought we would uh, call them out on the carpet for that because I think we need to know where people stood in this moment of history. And also, um, we also wanted to give some credit to the uh, people in Hollywood who signed a letter calling demanding the release of the Hamas hostages. We thank you, Jews, thank you everywhere. Jews everywhere, thank you for your support and your good wishes. We need them and we appreciate them. I am Neil Pollock. I am the greatest living American writer, a proud Jew, and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. And I will talk to you next week. Original Production.